The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Well, it had to happen eventually. The frustration from being unable to send out his screeds and diatribes via Twitter was going to get to former President Donald Trump. And there's a report from the Daily Beast that Trump is so frustrated from being unable to uh, send out insults on Twitter because he's banned uh, that he's been writing down insults and giving them to aides and asking them to tweet the messages out. This is being reported uh, by the Daily Beast. Um, sources close to Trump said to the Daily Beast that uh, Trump was really, really upset. I'm, I'm so wound up about the story. I th- just threw my Sharpie. Uh, the entire Liz Cheney thing where there was a, a referendum within the Republican Party about Liz Cheney and whether she should retain her leadership role or not. And uh, you might recall that Liz Cheney was one of the 10 Republicans in the House that um, back in January voted to impeach Donald Trump in the House of Representatives, now leading to his upcoming second impeachment trial. And this entire time, Trump couldn't tweet. He was desperate to tweet. He was desperate to attack his political opponents. And what is being reported is that Trump has, quote, written out insults and observations, several of them about Liz Cheney. I assume some are about her physical appearance because it's Trump uh, and has resorted to suggesting put downs for others to use or post to their own Twitter accounts. And uh, I mean, this is, you know, it's 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 so ridiculous and childish, but completely obvious that, you know, I was thinking Trump, Trump almost seems more upset about not being able to tweet than he is about not being president anymore. And then I thought, well, he might actually believe he still is the rightful president because he believes it was supposedly stolen by Joe Biden. Trump seems to know he's definitely banned from Twitter. I have this image of Trump sitting at Mar-a-Lago or wherever he is, I don't even know, with construction paper and crayons, but not the thin crayons, the fat ones where like it's impossible to write anything coherently sitting there writing out insults with one of the fat crayons and a piece of construction paper and seeing who might be willing to tweet it out. I think we'll know if Trump's written uh, screeds are getting out on Twitter. Like if we see Stephen Miller tweet that little Marco Rubio isn't really a patriot or something about Ted Cruz's wife's physical appearance, we'll know that it's probably not really Stephen Miller tweeting. It's probably actually Donald Trump. And as we observed during the presidency, This is a man, Trump, who seems to have like a bottomless reflex or a desire to just insult people. It comes so naturally to him. And a lot of it, from what we know, seems to come from from his childhood and the way he was raised and the relationship with his dad, not to get all all Freudian. Um, And uh, it's it's really the type of pathetic behavior that just reminds us again that this guy never had the temperament to be president of the United States. And we think back to Hillary Clinton during the debates in 2016, who said this man is temperamentally unfit to be president. And of course, she was completely right. Um, And uh, for the last uh, what was it? Few weeks, I guess, month or so of Trump being on Twitter. Uh, more than more than half, certainly. I don't know what percentage 
of his tweets were being labeled either misleading or were restricted by Twitter for either spreading conspiracy theories or making false claims about elections or whatever the case may be. And now we are seeing a real rift in the Republican Party where you have uh, lawmakers who want to completely get rid of even Trump, almost like erase Trump from history and get rid of his influence. And then you have this other side, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert side that seems determined to keep Trumpism going to Trump to, to some degree. And that's what led to this movement within the Republican Party to try to remove Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney, an anti Trump or at least a Trump skeptical Republican from a position of power. It failed. It failed. And throughout all of this, Donald Trump uh, reportedly very pleased with Marjorie Taylor Greene desperate to get somebody to tweet out the insults that he's been coming up with. So I, I don't know what else to tell you, but Trump behaving exactly as we would expect him to behave. This is very, very interesting. Many Republicans have been demanding smaller packages from Democrats, as we talked about yesterday. Jen Psaki regularly reminded of the fact that all these different Republicans say Biden's package is too big. They need a smaller uh, package. Mitt Romney is doing something very interesting. Mitt Romney is a Republican senator. He has a proposal to provide three thousand dollars per child to millions of American families. And this would be a form of bipartisan support for Joe Biden's um, uh, covid relief plan, which includes expanding child benefits. Now, it's a slightly different framework. Romney would give forty two hundred dollars per year per child up to age six. That goes down to three thousand dollars per year per child for age six to 17 and um, how that would interact with some of these other elements uh, is in the details that that we are still learning about. But what is very interesting about this is that one of the reasons that Mitt Romney and maybe some other Republicans are interested in this is that they think if you give these bigger payments uh, to people, they will be less likely to uh, file uh, or rather. No, I'm sorry. I, I, let, let me go backwards. Uh, Republicans believe that giving payments would discourage parents from finding jobs. And this is their concern with what Mitt Romney and also with with uh, what Joe Biden are proposing. This is this very old trope that we hear from the right, which is predicated on the idea that everybody's lazy and nobody has any drive or motivation and people just want to figure out how to not work at all. Most people, you know, there's an evolutionary thing to this. And when we I've read some very interesting articles about, you know, people who feel unfulfilled and all these different things, there are practical reasons for that. People seeking meaning and fulfillment. But there may also be an evolutionary reason, which is when you were fulfilled, human advancement potentially stopped when you were satisfied. You stopped trying to improve your circumstances and those of your children and their children and, and so on. So there may even be an evolutionary basis for this. But most people want to do something. Most people want meaning. Yes, there are some people who, for a variety of different reasons, want the easiest path out. If I can just sit at home and not work and collect money, that's fine. Most people don't want that. Most people want one job that pays well 
so that they can uh, have some meaning coming from employment and also have the financial wherewithal um, to be able to raise kids, put food on the table for family, participate in life in other ways. And this Republican idea that if you do this, it always assumes the worst about people's intentions and the worst about humanity. And that's really how these Republicans see people. But I'm glad to see Mitt Romney proposing um, uh, pr proposing an alternative to this. Now, this is going to be uh, the, the, the way that Romney's idea would be integrated is that Mitt Romney wants it to be an amendment to the Democratic budget resolution. And uh, it looks as though a budget res resolution, budget reconciliation is increasingly likely to be the way that this covid relief bill is going to be passed. And as I've said before, the fact that Democrats can pass this without any Republican involvement to me signals the time for so-called negotiation with Republicans is over. But I don't believe every Republican will vote against it. I believe that there are Republicans that either for personal political convictions or because of their, their realization that covid relief is popular with their constituents. Some Republicans are going to vote for this and uh, put uh, call them on their bluff. Right. See if they actually are all going to vote against the one point nine trillion dollar package. If that's what Democrats Democrats go forward with, I don't believe that they will. And in particular now with Mitt Romney jumping in, which makes this listen, I always thought it was naive to think you're going to get this big bipartisan covid relief bill when the party of Republicans is the party of obstruction. But merely Mitt Romney saying here's an idea and then I'm in favor of it. It makes it technically bipartisan, even if nobody else comes on board. So I think these are very, very interesting developments. And to be very clear, I know there are people who keep writing to me saying, Davy boy, why aren't you calling out Biden for the fact that he said 2000 and now it's 1400? And why aren't you calling out Biden for the fact that he said the checks would go out right away and they haven't? I have called him out. I called him out in just about every segment I've done, including on yesterday's show. Uh, Joe Biden has already not done what he promised, which is he said it would be $2,000, not to not fourteen hundred to get to a total of two thousand with the last stimulus. Joe Biden said two thousand dollar checks. Now they're talking about fourteen hundred. That's already a problem. Joe Biden also said if Democrats win the two seats in Georgia, checks go out right away. Well, it's already uh, February. I understand this takes a little bit of time, but it's time to move forward. It's time to do it with budget reconciliation, whether or not Republicans want to be involved. And I hope I mean, listen, if Mitt Romney proposing even more money for children is the way to make it bipartisan and get more Republicans to support it. Great. If not, it's time for Democrats to get it done by themselves. Let me know your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. Let's face it, most healthy snacks don't taste that good. They don't fill you up. They don't really satisfy your cravings, which is why you should check out Monk Pack. Today's sponsor, Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars taste like your favorite delicious sweet snacks. But each bar has less than one gram of sugar, only two to three grams of net carbs, and they're just 150 calories. These are perfect for a keto or low carb diet or anybody who wants to cut back on sugar. Flavors include caramel sea salt, sea salt, dark chocolate and peanut butter, dark chocolate. That's my go to. I love the Monk Pack keto nut and seed bars because they're just a good balance of sweet and salty, soft and chewy and a great crunch from the nuts and seeds. 
and they will give you all of your money back if you don't love them as much as I do. Go to monkpack.com. That's M U N K P A C K.com. And they'll give you 20% off when you use coupon code Pacman. The link is in the podcast notes. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at Steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do, perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns, send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy and anything they can't do online. They'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests. As an example, you don't need insurance. It's only ninety nine bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using steady MD for primary care. And it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com slash Pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's S T E A D Y M D dot com forward slash P A K M A N. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. All right, let's hear from some folks in the audience via the David Pacman Show Discord, which you can find at DavidPacman.com slash Discord. Let's start today with uh, James from New York. Is that is this is this James M.D. from New York? Are you a doctor? Oh, boy, James. Oh, yeah. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. Um, so I called in before sort of asking about why it seems like this whole government seems to be missing the forest for the trees. I thought you gave a great answer. Um, I have a question for you about it seems like Biden is just sort of entering the game, trying to play. Let's be friends with everybody. Let's show unity, almost like letting the Republicans sort of like undercut his positions, you know, give less for COVID, not do basically the best for the American you know, person. And why doesn't Biden just ram all of these things down their throats to basically get the general public to be like, wow, my health insurance is better. My food is better and cheaper. I actually did get money under Biden. Why does he seem to want to compromise on all this stuff to pretend like there's unity when the Republicans are in power? They put all the Supreme Court justices on and say, tough break, you lost the election. 
Well, I think we still need a little more time to know which path he's taking. You're completely right that Joe Biden has been talking about unity. He invited Republicans to the White House to meet about the covid bill on Monday night. I am fine with Biden talking about unity and talking to Republicans if, as you say, in the end, he just goes forward. And from what we heard after that Monday meeting from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, Democrats are just planning to move ahead with the covid relief bill as designed with the one point nine trillion. I believe it's actually perfect if Biden eventually is just going to say we're sticking with the one point nine and it's what Democrats go for. Put these Republicans in a position to actually vote no on it, because that covid relief bill is popular with many Republican voters, tens of millions of Republican voters. I don't believe call the bluff of the Republicans. I don't believe that every Republican is going to vote against the one point nine trillion because they know many of their constituents want that and they like that bill. So if what Joe Biden does is talk about unity, talk about compromise, meet with Republicans and then not go forward with the one point nine. I will be as pissed as it sounds like you're going to be if this is all just Biden doing what he said he would do, but then he's still going to stick to what he wants. I'm fine with it. We'll probably know in the next few days which of the two it's going to be. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I just I would rather him. I He could play the let's have unity together, but I just think he needs to ram these policies down their throats to show you know, the average American, especially, you know, it's, it seems like the biggest class that's voting conservative these days is uneducated voters that just to show them, here's the proof in the pudding. Here's your money. Here's I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Let's uh, let's see if he does it. James from New York. Appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Let's go next to Terrence from Gloucester. <clears throat> Terrence from Gloucester. You're on the air. Hi, David. How's it going? Uh, can you hear me OK? I can hear you fine. Uh, so I don't know if you remember me, but we spoke a couple of months ago when I called in under the single letter pseudonym T to talk about the Decent Federalism Project, uh, which was my project on Twitter at Decent Fed PROJ to advocate for distributing some power currently held by the federal government down to a five part framework of regions of the U.S., is, I know you take a lot of calls, but uh, do you roughly remember our conversation or anything we talked about? Yes. Okay, awesome. Uh, so the YouTube video on your channel, I think, is called uh, Should the Country Be Divided into Regions? And I think it's still a worthy video for people to check out. Um, but so I, I remember from our conversation, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I understood you as having said towards the end of our discussion that you were open, at least in principle, to a more regional approach to governance in the United States. Does that sound like a fair characterization of what you said? I, I don't remember exactly, but did you have a question today? Yeah. So so I guess my big question is whether you see the events of like recent uh, uh, days, recent months uh, as affirming or complicating the idea of regionalizing our system of governance in the way we've discussed before in terms of, you know, the stop the steal, the, the 17 uh, state attorneys general from the south and central parts of the country that um, basically wanted to overturn the election, um, as well as sort of the coalition that uh, Joe Biden built uh, for to, to win the election. I, I have to tell you, I don't think the events of the last few months um, to me s suggest that uh, regionalization for governance would be better or worse. I, I don't I don't think it really strikes me as something to think about in those terms one way or the other. OK, fair enough. That's that was really my only question, David. 
All right. Very good. Terrence from Gloucester. Great to hear from you again. Uh, let's go next to Dave from Brooklyn. Dave from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Dave from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Please unmute and we can chat. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, um, I'm big, big first time caller, big time fan. I Thank saw you. A video yesterday on YouTube about right wing uh, rash, uh, radicalization in media and how they're going to keep one upping each other and so on and so forth. And I was thinking about how as because uh, I, I have a few I come from a community in Los Angeles, a wealthier community where most of my friends growing up are Trump supporters. Mm. Most of the family members uh, that I have, except for my parents, are Trump supporters and so on and so forth. And um, I'm just baffled by the fact that on the left, we keep fighting this, we keep trying to fight this fight where we keep also trying to one-up each other with our uh, who's more correct, who's more liberal, who's more appropriate, who's, who cares more about race, who cares more about gender, who cares more about all this other stuff, rather than getting things done, rather than having an agenda that tries to actually progressively pass policies that will improve the lives of Americans. Well, let's separate um, out some of those, because, you know, when you say when you talk about who's most liberal as an example, yeah, there's no doubt that there is a, a movement based around virtue signaling, gatekeeping and litmus testing around what qualifies you as being more liberal or liberal enough. And that's probably not a productive movement. Who's most correct to me does not sound like it's under the same category. I, I think that that should be one of the top priorities. Let's figure out what is most correct, what policies are actually the most useful and well, beneficial. So I don't know that I'd wrap all of that together necessarily. Well, uh, maybe I wasn't uh, using my words actually, but I meant the, the reason why I uh, thought about this is because when it came to this whole GameStop fiasco with all the uh, with Robin Hood and everything that's going on, I have a yeah. lot of friends on the left who are really they're really having they're really upset about what's going on when they don't really understand the what's going on on the back end. I have friends who are engineers at Robinhood. My wife's a, an engineer at a financial company. I used to be a software engineer myself. And you know, from a technical perspective, yeah, there are, of course, somewhat corrupt things going on at a higher level. But from a technical and financial perspective, it makes a lot of sense what these companies have done um, from a policy perspective and, and shutting down trading, at least in the beginning. And you know, then we come and we get all mad about it when we're not really educated as a, as a liberal populace of the entire left-wing majority. We're not all educated on what goes on in the back end. No, that's certainly or. true. And I've read some of the technical defenses of why uh, why the ability to purchase was curtailed or suspended. But if that is I, I, I what my position after reading more about it is that if that if we have a system in which that is what is the correct technical decision, then there's a broader problem with the system that needs to be solved. And listen, th there's a noise coming through on your end that's so bad. I'm going to have Sorry. to let you go. But I really do appreciate the uh, question. And it's it's an important issue uh, for sure. And one one which we will we will continue looking at uh, very strongly. Let's go to Bethany from Oklahoma. Bethany from Oklahoma, you're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, perfect. Um, I, I actually hopped on here, not, um, not even realizing you were filming. I was just hoping to catch you. I don't know what time you all start the show, so I happened to hop on and I got called. This is crazy. Um, Beautiful. But, 
I guess my question is, um, in the past few days, you've been talking about how Biden is being um, being criticized for all of his executive orders. Yes. And we've talked about how, you know, he's doing what people want him to do. Um, but the critique I'm seeing from, you know, liberal friends is that since we control the House and the Senate now, why isn't he going about it through legislation because he doesn't necessarily have to get Republicans on board, does he? So a couple usually, thoughts on that. That's usually what you say. Is, yeah, you know, this is yeah, an important yeah. question. So there's a few different things, Bethany. First of all, if the things Joe Biden, uh, uh, if Joe Biden is dealing with actual emergencies via executive order, then you have to do it as quickly as possible. And so if if we agree, some of these things have to be changed right away. And I agree that some of the things that 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 Biden did via executive order do have to be changed right away. You do the executive order and then you try to get a more permanent uh, legislative infrastructure in the next two years during which Joe Biden will have um, the control of the House and Senate. So that argument the idea that you don't need to do any executive orders because you have control and you can do it all that that that's not a good argument. Number one, because if you have an actual emergency, you need to deal with it as quickly as possible. Number two, not everything can be done with a simple majority. Uh, there are things that that require 60 votes in the Senate mm-hmm. in order to get done. And so it's not quite so simple. Now, with something like covid relief, I'm ready for Biden to stop the meetings with Republicans. It was fine to do the meeting. It was fine to listen to Republicans who want 600 billion instead of one point nine trillion. But you can use budget reconciliation to pass covid relief with a simple majority and it's time to do it. So I think that any you know, anytime you hear such a general critique, Bethany, like Biden doesn't need to do any executive orders because he has the House and Senate and can just do everything legislatively. It's such a general assessment that it almost certainly it falls short as an analysis. And that's exactly the case. It's much more complicated than that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I had forgotten that part about, you know, of course, things, some things require more than a simple majority. That is absolutely accurate. And um, it takes time and it takes time. I mean, the, the, yes. even even without Republican obstruction, a lot of these things do have to go through committee. And, and you know, I'm not defending the, the speed at which the covid stuff is being done. I would have liked to see Biden do the meeting with Republicans on January 22nd and we could already be moving beyond it. But I understand why he's giving them a meeting. It, now it's just time to act and get it done. Yep, And I, I like what you said about, um, you know, if, if it's true that they want to follow up some of this stuff with legislation um, that does have a longer, uh, you know, hold then yes. that, that that makes more sense, too. And that is what I will um, come back with when I hear that talking point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the critique that in general executive orders are a problem because the next president can just undo it. That's always been a critique. That's that's not that's not uh, different than something mm-hmm. that could be said in the past. It doesn't really change whether for the time being that executive orders can be done. Joe Biden is right or wrong to use them. Gotcha. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's really all I I'm mainly just uh, listening, but I I did have that question that's been popping in my head while I've been watching your show um, this week. All right. Thanks, Bethany. Bethany from Oklahoma. Uh, Great to hear from you and uh, hope to hear from you again. 
Let's go. Uh, why don't we go next? Oh, there's just so many people who are interested in uh, in, in getting on today. Why don't we go to Sean from College Station? Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. My apologies. I had my keyboard on the floor. <laughs> oh, my. Why, how does the keyboard even get on the floor? Uh, uh, I have a small son and he loves to, uh, play with my keyboard. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, what's going on? Uh, not too much. Um, so I had a quick question. Um, I've asked it a couple times before, but I'm, I know you get tons of questions. Um, how would you feel about trying a Medicare for all in the same way that they're doing the electoral vote compact? So for example, as we know, the states uh, are signing up, and once we get to a certain number of states or a certain number of electoral votes, that's when the, the law will kick in. Uh, I hear a lot of people complain with Medicare for all on the state level that, oh, well, then a bunch of people are just going to move to that state. And you're going to have, you know, it's, it's going to be so overloaded in that state that there is no way any one state could handle it. So what if... What would you feel about like maybe some sort of interstate vote or interstate compact where, OK, once we have a certain number of the population, you know, if so California, there's a New couple York, different Texas, there's a couple mm. different issues there. OK, the first one is because, you know, the national popular national popular uh, vote interstate compact is not really analogous to what you're suggesting with Medicare for all, because mm -hmm. it, it, it it's just a completely different thing. There's, there, there's no way that if enough states do Medicare for all, you all of a sudden have fe federal Medicare for all. I mm. think the idea of starting Medicare for all within one state is a great idea. Vermont tried to do it a few years ago and they ultimately were not able to. Um, the the question of people moving to that state It'll become a problem more because of the supply of medical services. Financially, it shouldn't be a problem because if people move to that state, they'll be paying taxes to the state, which will support the program. OK, so that that's the concern is less about people moving from a financial standpoint. It's that it'll create demand for way more doctors and presumably some doctors will move there as well. So let's keep thinking about that. I'm going to let you go because it really sounds like you have your hands very, very full there with your son. Uh, very much appreciate the call. Let's take a quick break. If you're holding, don't hang up because we're going right back to the phones momentarily. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. You may not have known this, but when you see me sitting here on the show, I am often wearing shirts by a company called Teddy Stratford. I asked them to be a sponsor because they are by far my favorite shirts that I own with almost all other slim fit button up shirts I've worn. You get this annoying stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are, which does not look good. But what makes Teddy Stratford shirts unique is this patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which actually prevents the chest from looking weird and stretched out like that. It looks really good. And just all around, they cut the entire shirt in a specific way that makes your upper body look a lot better. It's just a much nicer and more stylish fit than you get from other shirts. And they hand make everything with 100 percent Egyptian cotton and flat felled seams, which means it's going to be a lot more durable than other shirts and last a lot longer, which I really love. 
Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15 percent off your first order if you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19. And they're giving my audience 20 percent off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky, lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. Welcome back to The David Pakman Show. All right, let's hear from a few more folks via the David Pakman Show Discord server, which you can find at uh, davidpakman.com slash discord. Let's go to Trudy from Glasgow. Trudy, you're on the air. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I just wanted to phone up and uh, thank you very much for the common sense that you bring to things. My pleasure. Um, it's just very nice to hear your point of view. Obviously, living in Scotland, we're back in a full lockdown at the moment, so um, we're all staying at home. I work at a primary school uh, for uh, five to twelve-year-olds, so yes. I'm still at work, um, but. Everyone else is at home. So how are things looking from the standpoint of vaccination? Um, at the moment, I think in Scotland, we're just sending out letters for the over 60s to get an appointment for vaccination. That's interesting. Um, it's being done by uh, paper letters are being sent out. That's I've not heard of that before. Yes. Uh, yeah, you get a, you get an appointment um, to go to your local vaccination center. Interesting. And is that is it going more slowly than people would like? I mean, I guess no matter what, it's going more slowly than people would like. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly going more slowly, I think, than I would like. Um, but obviously, they're, they're doing all they can or you, you hope or you presume that they're doing all they can to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Of course. Yeah. And is there uh, how how strong is the anti-vax movement in Scotland? It's not very strong. It's not strong enough that I'm aware of it. Oh, that's good. That's good. If you're not aware of it, that's a great start. Like, I'm very aware of it in the United States. Right. I mean, I know of a few people who have said, oh, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to get it or not. Or um, but that really that's just a personal point of view. It's right. not it's not really a whole movement. Have you um, do you know people who have been vaccinated? 
And my mom just had her first dose last week. So. Oh, okay. And side effects? How were they? Nothing really. She felt a little unwell, you know, a bit of a headache for a couple of days, but that was all. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was down with a fever 36 hours. I was shocked, truly. Wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, she had the, the Oxford AstraZeneca one. So. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that one is not currently available in the U S but, um, very, it's great that, that there are so many vaccines now on the precipice of approval. Well, good Trudy. I'm, I appreciate your comments and hope, uh, hope people get vaccinated soon. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. All right. Trudy from Glasgow. What a polite, perfect phone call. Unbelievable. Let's go next to Ivan from Phoenix, Arizona. Ivan, you're on the air. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Um, so I'm currently a senior in high school. Okay. Um, and recently I've been paying attention to uh, like the local elections over here in, I'm actually in Gilbert, um, but like also the politicians here. And uh, I've realized that like a lot of them are extremely slimy um, mm. people. I'm just curious how I can get more involved to make sure that these types of people aren't elected anymore especially as um, Arizona is becoming more left leaning. Yeah, I mean, this, it, you know, pay attention to whether there is a candidate that you find to be not slimy that runs at the city council level, mayoral level, whatever, uh, and work for their campaign. I mean, there's no all of these upstart campaigns want volunteers. And if you don't see anybody who you want to put your efforts behind, consider maybe running yourself at some point. But that's this is exactly the right question. You don't like the people that are representing you. Um, and so you have you can have a voice in that. And that means not only can you will you be able to vote? I don't know if you're, you're already old enough to vote. Not only will you be able to vote, you can run, you can support other candidates, you can draft other candidates and say to someone you should really run against this person. So, yeah, the local level is where you can actually have the biggest and fastest impact in many ways. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, last year, I had the opportunity to go to the Capitol um, for like an environmental day and speak with uh, the my con uh, my representative. Um, and he just started questioning like the sources our biology books came from. Oh my and, god! Yeah, it was like an absolute mess. Um, so I just want to make sure like these types of people aren't able to have any power. You know, I just recently was reading that the the most dangerous state to be in from the standpoint of the pandemic is Arizona. Have you does that resonate with you in terms of what you've seen? Oh, yeah, it's a complete mess here. Um, people don't wear masks in stores like I, I work at a Walmart and probably one third of the people aren't wearing masks when they're inside um, schools. Nobody wears masks. It's it's just really bad here. And how about as far as vaccines? Are you hearing a lot of anti-vax talk? Um, actually, I haven't heard too much um, anti-vax talk, um, just more so people still believing that the virus is just a democratic hoax. <laughs> well, the weird thing about that is you'd think then it would have ended when Joe Biden was sworn in. Yeah, I mean, I my my uncle kept saying that come November 3rd, the coronavirus is going to be over. And right. Look, at here we are. Have you talked to him and asked what happened? Uh, I haven't actually. Um, we don't have the strongest uh, relation. OK, um, yeah, I can guess yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, listen, Ivan, you're asking all the right questions. You're doing all the right things. It's great that you're involved. Well, thank you very much, David.
All right. Ivan from Phoenix. Fantastic. Fantastic to have uh, young folks involved. Very, very important. Let's go to Cy from Texas. Cy from Texas. You're on the air. David, I just had a one question. Yes, please speak up, Cy, so we can hear you. Uh, sure. Is this OK? Yeah, that's better. Uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts on, I guess, uh, the Democrats uh, promising two thousand dollar checks and I guess flip flopping to fourteen hundred checks instead? Right. I personally don't. I, I would take anything. But I've seen a lot of, uh, I guess, criticism from mainly more the left, like uh, far left. Um, so I was just wondering. I think it's a that. fair criticism. So listen, I mean, when. <laughs> When they first started talking about uh, the one point nine trillion, um, you could more plausibly make the argument that, like, listen, they supported two thousand in December. And since people got six hundred, another fourteen hundred gets us to the total of two thousand. Like, OK, I kind of get that. But at this point, by the time people get any money, it'll probably be March. It'll be almost four months later. So I believe that it should be 2000, not not get us to a total of 2000. I think it should just be 2000. So I don't like it like you. I believe that getting fourteen hundred to people is still so much better than nothing. And hopefully cases will continue coming down. The economy will start to recover, et cetera. But I don't like it for me when when they said 2000, the way I understood it was 2000 more, not 1400 to get us to a total of two. And so I don't I don't like it one bit. OK, yeah. That's all right. Thank you so much. As well. yeah. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Great to hear from you. Uh, all right. Let's go next to uh, where do we want to go? There's, there's some interesting folks and there's some dangerous folks to talk to. Let's briefly speak to Justin from the United Kingdom. Justin from the UK. You're on the air. Hello. Do you hear me? I do hear you. Hi, David. Good to speak to you. Likewise. Um, I was actually born in Chicago in the United States, okay. um, but I've lived all my life in the UK. So you've and only it seems like you've only taken on a slight British accent. Yeah, my dad's American and I listen to a lot of you fine American folks. So got it. You know, I think I've adopted some of the, the twang, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, Perfect. I was wondering when you guys are going to sort out your shiz, if you know what I mean, because, you know, I'm living here in the UK. I have the paradise of uh, free health care whenever I want it. Right. No price. <laughs> and one day, you know, I'd like to move to the US and uh, make good use of that citizenship that I have. But from the outside looking in, it's a bit like in some in some ways, it's a, a bit of a third world country. And, is, it, uh, is it specifically the health care thing that's what's making you hesitate? I guess it's a thought. It's not, not just the healthcare. It's the healthcare. It's the complete lack of uh, paid vacation days. Let's say I have a family in the future and I want to have a kid. I don't want to have to pay money to have a child, you know, and have potentially higher infant mortality rates than I would have here. Um, you you so, mean not when you so? Yeah. Let me see if I, you're saying lack of paternity leave. Not necessarily only paternity leave, but I'm I'm speaking also for you know the women of the world. Um, and that any partner I might have would not be able to avail themselves of that maternity leave. And uh, a lack of paid vacation days is a serious. Well, know, hold on. I mean, maybe maybe there's this is just a genuine misunderstanding. But, you know, the, the truth is that in the United States, things are very, very much tiered. And there there are tiers of jobs where 
Uh, there's yeah. plenty of paid vacation and uh, insurance is is uh, good enough. I mean, the problem is that there's such inequality that you have neighborhoods that are five miles apart where the circumstances are dramatically different for I, I hate to say this, but if you were to come to the United States with a good job waiting for you, you get paid vacation, paid maternity leave, uh, uh, relatively modest health insurance contributions. I mean, what, what's horrible about the system is that it does work quite well for people in uh, in certain jobs, and it's an absolute embarrassing disaster for people in others. I, I hate to admit that, um, but, yeah. you know, depending on which situation you were in, it could be a disaster or it could be fine. I mean, that's what's so horrible. Yeah, I mean, for me, it would definitely be the case. I'd be able to get a, a decent enough job to have suitable health care, at least for me. Right. But it's still just something you have in the back of your mind. You know, of if course. the economy takes a downturn or whatever and you don't have health insurance at that time. Absolutely. Uh, what you do. And it's just, you know, it's a matter of writing out pros and cons for living in different countries, as we globalized people tend to do who have the opportunity to move around and work in different countries. Right. And, you know, when you're looking at America compared to, let's say, the Netherlands or other places in Europe, and you're ticking the boxes, there's just a lot of boxes left unticked on the American side that kind of make it look less appealing, which I think is a shame. <laughs> no doubt about it. I, I completely sympathize with you. And uh, yeah, I mean, where, where in the UK are you? I'm in Birmingham, not Alabama. Right, right. Okay, interesting. I've never been, but, but certainly the UK has some... Uh, Fantastic cities with high quality of life, and I uh, I understand why why people might hesitate to abandon that. Della, okay, uh, all right, we lost them, but uh, very very well made points, and I um, I appreciate them. Let's try. Um, why don't we go to Sam from Princeton, Massachusetts, not Princeton, New Jersey? Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Um. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I, I sort of realized that this isn't exactly the top of like priorities right now. Um, okay. But I was just on Twitter before I came in this lobby and I'm seeing there's lawmakers in some, some sort of congressional meeting and I've seen it going on a little bit um, talking about trans people in athletics uh-huh. um, and sort of legislating that um, process. Now I, I'm on the left. Um, I consider myself to be ardently pro trans rights and everything, but it does at the same time seem pretty deeply unfair to me that to allow, you know, people who are born biologically different to, for example, trans women to participate in men's sports or in women's sports. Um, yeah. But I, think- I mean, listen, it sounds like we have the same view. I've talked about this before, which is I have a problem with people that pretend like this is the big issue, the big injustice that's going on. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. You recognize this is not like the biggest issue at the same time. When I think about a sport like weightlifting or wrestling and I think about someone born biologically male and then saying, well, they now um, that they they identify as uh, as a woman and they're going to participate in wrestling or weightlifting, it strikes me as not making complete and total sense. And this does not in any way affect the fact that I believe uh, trans folks should be able to live lives free of discrimination. Uh, They should be included in uh, protections when it comes to employment and uh, should be able to uh, have a license that reflects their uh, uh, gender as, as, as they want to exist in the world. And yet it just doesn't I just don't understand how you say, well, someone born biologically male can participate in women's wrestling. It, I don't I don't get it. 
I get that you're not uh, saying it's the most important issue. Neither am I. It's not even the most important issue within trans rights to me. There are so many more important issues within trans rights. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm basically with you. I, I would love somebody to explain it to me. Yeah, I totally. And the thing that I, that sort of concerns me is like, I, cause I, I, I watch your show and I watch other things too. And what I, the sense that I get is that um, I would be called a transphobe for that. And I'm, you know, I'm seeing people like in the majority report and, and that sort of thing saying, you know, that opinion, people are sort of dunking on like Tulsi Gabbard for having that opinion, saying she's not really on the left. And I was thinking, well, I mean, I don't know if that's fair, you know? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the, the question is, so I, I've said before how you can be in favor of the movement to boycott Israeli products and services without being anti-Semitic, but it also is a great cover for lots of anti-Semitic folks. Right. Much, much the same way you can have this position or these questions about uh, the, the, the trans women's sports issues and be using it as a cover for your transphobia. Or not, you might be a staunch defender of trans rights and anti-trans dis, uh, discrimination, and still have that question. So it, it's not a rule that that you are or are not transphobic because you are trying to better understand this issue as I am. Right. Yeah, that's where I see myself. So yeah. Anyway, thanks for uh, taking my call. All right, my pleasure. Appreciate the call very, very much. That is all the time we have for today. I apologize, I was not able to get to everybody. But I hope to be able to at some point in the future. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. What if you could read 10 books in just one sitting? That's exactly what one of my favorite apps lets you do. It's called Blinkist. And what they do is take thousands of popular nonfiction books they condense them down into text or audio that you can consume in 15 minutes. Blinkist makes sure that you're getting all of the important core insights from each book. So it's perfect for exploring a book you otherwise wouldn't have time for. If there's a full book you're thinking about buying, you can use Blinkist to get a sample first. Just think how much you can enrich yourself by being able to soak up an entire nonfiction book in just 15 minutes. I recently checked out the book Podcast Marketing Strategy by Daniel Rolls and Kieran Rogers and so useful, so particularly applicable to what I'm doing. Really recommend it. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library, but you can try it totally free and get 25% off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. All right, let's get into audience questions. First question, David, why have opposite why has opposition to COVID guidelines? been primarily a right wing thing in the United States. The in the United States piece is interesting. I don't know if opposition in other countries has been from the political right or not. There has been some covid guideline opposition from the left. There are some I think there's a subreddit called like um, 
liberal lockdown skeptics or something along those lines. But you're absolutely right that it's been mostly from the political right. And I think there's a couple different things going on. First of all, there is this sort of cartoonish idea of liberty and freedom that exists on the right uh, more so than it does on the left. And it's not that the left doesn't believe in liberty and freedom, but the left has a, a, a less cartoonish concept of what that means. So, for example, on the right, things like liberty and freedom are often assigned to I can disregard anyone else's public health concerns and do whatever the hell I want. That's freedom and liberty on the right. On the left, we tend to see freedom and liberty more as we have the freedom and liberty to live our lives working wherever we find it to be most rewarding without having to consider whether we will have health insurance at this job versus that job. That's the kind of freedom and liberty we talk about on the left. So obviously that right wing concept of freedom and liberty uh, is going to lead people down the path of needing to wear masks businesses, uh, restaurants having to be takeout only. No, no, no. That's violating my my freedom and liberty. The other thing was certainly Trump related. And what I mean by that is um, Trump did nothing early and Trump didn't wear masks and Trump was skeptical of what was being done in different uh, in different parts of the uh, country with regard to certain governors and so on and so forth. So by definition, what Trump wanted was seen as seen as the thing for freedom and what anybody else wanted was seen seen as a restriction on so-called freedoms. If you were suggesting something other than what Trump was suggesting or doing, importantly, um, then you were the enemy and it was bad and you were restricting people's freedoms. Since coronavirus began during the Trump presidency in an election year, there was this understanding that anybody suggesting uh, something uh, be done differently than what Trump wanted was essentially an indictment of Trump's response, which, of course, required much indictment. It was one of the worst five responses in the world, according to a, to a recent study. And what continues to get me about that, even now with Donald Trump gone, is that as much as uh, the virus handling was Trump's undoing, it could have guaranteed his reelection. It was a wasted opportunity. Trump and the Republican Party, all they had to do was stand aside and say, what do the experts say? Oh, they say masks. We're printing American flag masks. We want to get them out to everybody instead of rejecting the idea of having the Postal Service distribute masks to everybody. They could have said, yes, the Postal Service will be bringing everybody five American flag masks. It's the patriotic thing to do. They could have passed, uh, uh, you know, they, they could pass what they passed and more to serve as a bridge to dealing with the virus. And Trump would have sailed to reelection and Republicans likely would still control the Senate. So the the idea that it had to go the way it went down political lines with the anti maskers and the anti closures and guidelines, people uh, saying they are violating our freedom, they are treading on us and so on because of the tone that was set by Trump. That was all optional. However, for Trump to have handled it differently would have required Trump to be a different person. The exact same narcissistic tendencies that are what a lot of people uh, were drawn to Trump by were what prevented Donald Trump from doing what I suggested from the beginning, which is saying, let's do what the doctors say. Let's be patriots. It'll be tough, but we're all going to do it together. 
Um, if Trump had had sort of bought into that, he wouldn't have been Trump in a sense. And that's part of why he was unable to do it. I do think Trump's base would have followed him. I got a few emails saying, you know, if Trump had done the stuff you're suggesting, his base wouldn't have followed him. Um, I think that Trump's base was more than willing to be led in absolutely any direction at any point in time. And um, it, it was uh, Listen, Trump would have had a second term had he dealt with it properly. David, do you think Washington, D.C.'s strict gun laws saved lives during the Trump riot? This is a very interesting question. It's really a question that has to be thought about in large numbers. And what I mean by that is statistically, D.C.'s gun laws almost certainly saved some lives. Let me uh, uh, talk, talk through my sense of it. And if you disagree with me, just let me know. I know that the gun people often say gun laws don't stop any crimes because the criminals don't follow the laws anyway. The criminals will find an illegal way to get a gun. The criminals will bring guns where they aren't allowed anyway, so it doesn't make a difference. And certainly anecdotally, that may well be true. To some degree, that may well be true. But there are certainly some insurrectionists who opted to leave their firearms at home who, if the laws were laxer in D.C., would have brought guns with them. Some of them certainly had guns with them. We know that. Um, but the number of guns was certainly lower because of Washington, D.C.'s gun laws. Uh, as a result of that, there are certainly some people who if they had had firearms with them on that day in Washington, D.C., could have been uh, ending up in some kind of a confrontation where either they would have taken out, drawn or used their firearm or police may have used one against them by virtue of seeing that some of these individuals were armed. So were there people in the Capitol with guns? Probably. Yeah, probably they were some. Would the number have been higher? Were the gun laws way more relaxed in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I think it's undeniable that more people would have had guns and reducing the number of guns in the situation removes, lowers the probability that there would have been more of an escalation. Um, now, I know that there are lots of people saying, David, a lot of the people did have guns and they didn't they didn't use them. They didn't draw them. That That's fine. But it's merely a numbers game. If you introduce way more guns into people involved in violent confrontations, physical scuffles, shoving matches and the like, the odds that a gun comes out just goes up by 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 virtue of the number of guns that are that are around. Um, the, the other thing that I think is important to mention is a lot of the way that this went down. And there was a very delayed, you know, we, we were learning about the stand down orders that have been uncovered and a lot of different things. But another aspect to this is that for a while on January 6th, there was the perception from many, including many in law enforcement, that this was going to be just another Trump rally. Now, they had plenty of reasons to know it was going to be more than that. And we're, we're exploring whether that was ignored or what directives were given. But to some degree, some of the people uh, involved around the event uh, thought this was just going to be another Trump rally. And that probably early on also led to the lack of response that we saw. Had there been more of a response early on uh, and more guns around, I think that without a doubt, the odds of a gun escalation uh, go go up dramatically. 
Uh, fortunately, there wasn't. And I do think that some role, some role was D.C.'s gun laws. And there are many, many ways in which those gun laws to many people did not make a difference. Hey, David, you talked about right wing dog whistles. Are there left wing dog whistles? This is an interesting question. You know, when we talk about a dog whistle, a dog whistle is a coded message that's communicated by using words or phrases or even gestures in some way that are commonly understood by a particular group of people and not necessarily by others. So as an example, a George Soros and Rothschild, the Rothschilds, that has become a dog whistle for anti-Semitic tropes about rich, usually Jewish men conspiring to control elements of government or banking or whatever the case may be. The recent Marjorie Taylor Greene Jewish space laser incident, when she says the Rothschilds, that is a dog whistle for people who are primed about uh, uh, Jewish conspiracies to control this or that industry to understand that by Rothschilds, you're, you're really talking about Jews. George Soros, often when it's mentioned, it means Jews. And so that would be an example of a right wing uh, dog whistle. People, some people are attuned to listen to it, listen for it or to hear it. Globalist is another one which often also is used to signal we're talking about Jews. Now, I have some examples of left wing, uh, maybe what we would call dog whistles. They're pretty lame and they really don't rise to the level of the right wing dog whistles. The right uses dog whistles much more than the left. Here's a couple of examples I could think of. Sometimes when the left says rural, you could argue that it's a sort of dog whistle for like the uneducated hillbilly meme or caricature sometimes not not always um, sometimes there's dog whistling around suggesting people are racist like for example saying someone voted for the crime bill talking about the 90s crime bill that could be a pseudo dog whistle to imply someone is is racist without saying this is a racist person um, maybe flyover country is a dog whistle to suggest that, you know, kind of the center of the country is less than the so-called liberal coastal areas. The reason that these are kind of weak is because the left really doesn't use language in the dog whistle way that the right does for better or worse. And when I say for worse, we know that the left is terrible at branding and to some degree, even though the dog whistling on the right is disgusting in many cases, including stuff like Soros as a catch all for for Jews, some of the dog whistling the right does has been very effective politically when it comes to um, uh, abortion, when it comes to some religious ideas, when it comes to taxation, there are dog whistles that the right has used successfully. I think they're disgusting and inaccurate. They relate to socialism and life and all these different things. But the reason that the examples I'm coming up with for the left, uh, um, the reason that those are lame uh, is that the left really just doesn't use language in this way. And to some degree, the left has suffered for it. The left has probably lost what could have been wins in some cases because their branding and language is, is not as uh, a finely tuned, finely operating of a machine as the right is. If you can think of left wing dog whistles that I've missed, certainly let me know. We've got a fantastic bonus show for you today. Get instant access to the bonus show by becoming a member at joinpacman.com.